In Greek mythology, there's a man named Sisyphus. Now, according to the legend, Sisyphus got on the wrong side of Zeus one day. So Sisyphus was punished. And what was the punishment? Sisyphus was given the task of rolling a large boulder up a hill, and every time he got the boulder near the top of the hill, the boulder would roll down to the bottom again. So Sisyphus would have to start the process all over again. For all eternity, day after day, Sisyphus was sentenced to perform a meaningless, pointless exercise. So why are we talking about Sisyphus? We're talking about Sisyphus because from some of the you asked for it questions we've received over the years, it appears that more than a few followers of Jesus quietly wonder if praying to God is like constantly rolling a boulder up a hill. Many seem to be wondering if prayer is, in reality, a charade. Have you ever seen the ride at Disneyland where the child thinks she's steering the car when in reality the car is actually attached to a chain beneath it and is simply following a preordained path? Some people are wondering, when you get right down to it, is that what prayer is really like? Some people are wondering, if God's all-knowing, if God's all-powerful, if God's in control of the universe, what's the point in praying? I mean, isn't God going to do what God's going to do no matter what we want or ask? That's the question we're going to do our best to answer in today's You Asked For It series. And it's my hope that the truth will not only instruct your mind, but it'll also inspire your heart. It's my hope that the truth will lead you to desire to pray more and not lead you to feel the need to pray less. Well, with that in mind, let's dive into some truths about God and about prayer. Let's begin with some truths about God. It is true that God is all-knowing. That's true. I mean, the authors of Scripture have always declared this truth about the nature of God. The psalmist said, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding, his knowledge, has no limit. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me, declared the psalmist. You know when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. In fact, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Now, the fancy term for this level of knowledge is the omniscience of God. This means that we cannot tell him anything he doesn't already know. God knows everything that has happened. That means God would be the greatest uh, history professor the world has ever seen. God knows everything that is happening. That means God would be the world's greatest news anchor. God knows everything that will happen in the future. So God would own Las Vegas. God knows everything that could happen. Think about this. God would be the world's greatest risk management guru. He knows everything that could possibly happen. God even knows everything that would happen, but will not actually happen. That means God knows what you would be like if you were born a Muslim woman in Yemen in the 10th century. He knows what would happen, but won't actually ever happen. So how does the fact that God already knows everything lead one to believe that prayer is meaningless? I mean, prayer was never designed to be or described as an exercise in giving God updates on what's going on in the world. So how does the fact that God already knows everything make prayer a charade? I mean, when you think about it, 
The fact that God's all-knowing doesn't make prayer less appealing. It makes it more appealing. It doesn't make prayer less powerful. It makes prayer more powerful. Think about it. Who would you rather look to for assistance in your life? Someone who can be fooled and uninformed or someone who has all of the facts at their fingertips? Now, I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, the more factual, the more powerful. And when it comes to the facts, God is all-knowing. And when it comes to prayer, that is a good thing. But it gets even better. Not only is it true that God is all-knowing, God is also all-powerful. Job said, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Scripture says in the book of Revelation, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty, all-powerful, reigns. Now the fancy word for this attribute of God is omnipotence. This means that God can do anything he desires to do. By the way, let's quickly dismiss the predictable objection from the typical online troll who asks, can God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? The answer is no. God cannot create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it. Well, then he's not omnipotent. Yeah, he is. Omnipotence is not the ability to do the logically impossible. For example, God can't create a square circle or a married bachelor. Neither can God create something that he can't control, like a rock that he can't lift. God is all-powerful in the sense that God can do anything he wants to do, anything he desires to do. So how would the fact that God is all-powerful lead one to believe that prayer is meaningless or a charade? Who would you rather look to for assistance in your life? Someone who can be overthrown and overwhelmed? or someone who has all the power that they need to accomplish their purposes. Again, I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, the more powerful, the better. And when it comes to power, God is all-powerful. And when it comes to prayer, that is yet another good thing. But there's still more. Not only is it true that God's all-knowing, and not only is it true that God's all-powerful, God is also sovereign. Speaking of the divine authority of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, an early leader in the church, wrote this. He said, For in Christ all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible. Whether we're talking about thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and look at this, and in him all things hold together. Scripture says in Psalms, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. All of this means that God is the final authority over everything in the universe. Now, I learned early in life who was sovereign in our home as a child by how my questions got answered. Mom, can I sleep over at my friend's house? Go ask your father. Now, that usually meant the answer was going to be no, and my mom didn't want to be the one to have to tell me. But either way, I learned who the final authority ultimately was. Well, when it comes to what takes place in the universe, God is sovereign. God is the one who holds the final authority. So how would the fact that God is sovereign lead one to believe that prayer is meaningless and a charade? Now, actually, this is where it could be argued that people have the most legitimate concern. 
I mean, if God is ultimately in control of the universe, doesn't that make us puppets? If God is sovereign over the universe, what possible role could we have? What possible role would prayer play? If God is sovereign, isn't God going to do what God's going to do? Well, all of this leads us to the next step in our journey. We've just spent a few moments digging into some truths about God. Now let's turn for a moment to dig into some truths about prayer. So is prayer a charade? I mean, is prayer an exercise in futility? Is prayer kind of the spiritual version of pushing a rock up a hill forever or steering a kitty car at Disneyland? Or has God designed things in such a way that prayer has a very real and a very meaningful purpose in our lives and in the history of our world? Can the hopes of a parent tossed heavenward actually affect the circumstances of their child here on earth? Can the request of a child kneeling beside their bed actually reach the ears and impact the mind of an all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God? Can the whispered words of a mere mortal make any difference in the grand scheme of things? The scriptural authors, under the inspiration of God, have revealed to us the truth that God calls us to pray and God promises to answer. Now, speaking through the psalmist, God declared, Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Jesus himself made this promise to his followers. He said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you're going to find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. So is Jesus saying that every prayer we pray will be answered with a yes? No, Jesus wasn't making that claim because, as we're going to see in a moment, Jesus himself would pray a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that the Father would respond to with a no. I mean, every year that I watch my beloved Toronto Maple Leafs play hockey, I'm reminded that God does not say yes to every prayer. And that reality can be a source of great frustration when it comes to prayer. Mark Twain's famous character, Huckleberry Finn, summed it up well. Listen to the conclusion he came to regarding the topic of prayer. Huckleberry Finn said, Miss Watson, she took me in the closet and prayed, but nothing came of it. She told me to pray every day, and whatever I asked for, I would get it. But it weren't so. I tried it. Once I got a fish line, but no hooks. It weren't any good to me without hooks. I tried praying for the hooks three or four times, but somehow... I couldn't make it work. By and by, one day, I asked Miss Watson to try for me, but she said I was a fool. She never told me why, and I couldn't make it out no way. No, I says to myself, there ain't nothing to it. So how does it all work then? An all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God calls upon us to pray and promises to answer us when we pray. But not every answer is going to be a yes. So, how do we make sense of this? How does God's knowledge, God's power, God's sovereignty, and our feeble requests all fit and work together? Well, this brings us to what I've often referred to as the strike zone of prayer. Now, I'm sure most of us are familiar with the concept of the strike zone in baseball. It's any ball that's thrown over the plate between the chest and the knees of the batter. 
Now, in baseball, the strike zone is the active zone. The strike zone is the zone where all of the action is supposed to take place between the pitcher and the batter. Well, I would propose to you that there is also a strike zone when it comes to prayer. It's the zone where all of the action takes place between us and God. So what is this zone? Well, first let me tell you what it's not. First of all, there are things that God will not do no matter how much we pray. Oh God, my neighbor's driving me crazy with all the noise and all the partying that goes on there. Please send a meteor down upon their house and crush them. Smite them, oh God, almighty smiter. Smite them and destroy their home. I can pray that all I want. That's not going to happen. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the last nights of his life on earth. And he knew the intensity that was about to take place in his life. He knew that he was about to be crucified. He knew he was about to be whipped and beaten. He knew the trauma that was about to take place. He had been preparing himself for it for a long time. But in the intensity of that moment, Jesus prayed this in the garden. He said, Father, if it's at all possible, let this cup be taken from me. Now, this cup was the, the cup of wrath. This cup was the cup of, of terror and trauma, the cup of death that he was about to experience. Now, here's the thing. In his divinity, Jesus was determined to experience the cross. This wasn't being forced on him. He chose the cross. But in his humanity, at that moment of intense stress, Jesus prayed to avoid the cross if it was at all possible. And the father said, no, the cross could not be avoided, no matter how much someone prayed, even no matter who prayed it. So then, there are things God will not do, no matter how much we pray. However, secondly, there are also things God will do, whether we pray or not. We don't need to pray each evening that the sun will rise the next morning. God will do that, whether we pray or not. We don't need to pray that the earth's gravity will be in operation while we sleep. God will do that whether we pray or not. We don't need to teach our children to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my body to keep from floating to the ceiling. We don't need to pray that prayer. We don't need to pray that God will be just and holy and loving. He already will be. Abraham recognized this reality when he was interceding for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham declared, far be it from you, Lord, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham was saying, I know you are always going to do what is just. I know I don't need to pray to you that you will be just because just is who you are. Just is what you are. So then, there are things that God will not do no matter how much we pray. There are things God will do whether or not we pray. And this brings us to the strike zone of prayer. Between these two outer zones that are out of bounds when it comes to prayer lies this huge inner zone, the zone where God is willing to act and is willing to respond. So there are things that God will not do no matter how much we pray. There are things God will do whether we pray or not. And then there's the strike zone of prayer. There are things that God will only do in response to prayer. The year is 591 BC. Many years before, the 12 tribes of Israel went through a civil war, tearing the one nation into two nations, each with their own king. 
The northern ten tribes retained the name of Israel, while the southern two tribes retained the capital city of Jerusalem and went by the name Judah. Now, over the years, the northern tribes turned their backs on God first, and after years of ignoring prophetic warnings, they were finally judged by God by having the nation of Assyria come and attack them and overthrow them. So these northern ten tribes of Israel were defeated and never heard from again in history. That left the southern two tribes known as the nation of Judah. Eventually, even Judah began to falter and wander away from God. By the way, Judah is where we get the word Jews today. They wandered away from God, causing God to send them prophets like Jeremiah to warn them. But God's warnings were ignored, and Judah was taken into captivity by the nation of Babylon. Well, this shocked the people of Judah, and they cried out to God, asking how we could let this happen. Speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, God explains to them exactly what has taken place. Listen carefully to what God said to them back then and how it applies to what we're talking about today. God said to them, well, here's what happened, folks. I looked for a man among you who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I wouldn't have to destroy it, but I found none. In other words, God said, listen, you're wondering what happened? I looked for people in your nation, people who would intercede on your behalf, meaning pray, stand in the gap between me and you, people who would represent the nation on your behalf, people who would pray for the, what was happening. I looked for someone so I could listen to them and respond to their prayers, and there was none. Nobody was praying to me. Nobody was asking uh, for me to intercede on your behalf, to move and act on your behalf. And so Babylon came and destroyed you. Think about that. God was saying, there are things that I was willing to do if you would ask me, but nobody asked me, so nothing was done. That's incredible. This is the strike zone of prayer. This is the zone that's home to the things that God will only do if we ask him to do them. It's the strike zone of prayer. It's the zone where the Father healed people when Jesus called upon him to do it. This is the zone where Jesus healed people when they reached out to him and asked. This is the zone where God provided for his people when they called out to him in their times of need. Here's the thing. I often wonder how many times God has been willing to step forward in my life if I would only have asked him to. I wonder how many times God's been willing to say yes in my life if I had only given him the opportunity to say yes. You know, I have a slogan that I use here at Broadway and I've, I've used as a leader for many years. I'll tell our, our team and our, our leaders, don't say someone's no for them. Meaning, you see an individual and you're thinking, I would like to invite them to volunteer in a ministry or to maybe hire them. But you think to yourself, nah, they would never do it. They don't want this job. They wouldn't want to volunteer in that area. So we don't go, we don't ask them. We don't give them the opportunity to, to, to respond to us. We're saying they're no for them. And I've said for years to our leadership, to our team, to our, our staff, I said, don't say someone's no for them. You don't know what's going on in their heart. You don't know what's going on in their life. If they want to say no, let them say no. Don't say their no for them. I experienced this reality many years ago. 
uh, when I was moving from one church to another. I was uh, leading a church in Chilliwack at the time. This is 20 years ago or so. And I knew I was about to move back to Ontario to pastor a church in the Niagara region. No one else knew this, but I knew this. And I was speaking at Summit Pacific College, a, a college in, in Abbotsford. I was speaking for the week. And uh, the one evening after I spoke, I went to a, a gentleman there. He was on staff. He was leading a whole program at this college. And I said to him, I said, Bill, I said, listen, this is a secret, but I'm about to leave Chilliwack and move back to Ontario. And I'm going to need to hire some staff. I'm going to need to hire a youth pastor. I said, Bill, you're working in the college here. You work uh, throughout our province and across our nation. I said, listen, who is the best youth pastor? Who's an up and coming youth pastor that I can hire? And then I stopped myself and I said, actually, Bill, hold on. I said, I'm going to start at the top and work my way down. What about you? Would you be willing to come to leave your role here as a, a teacher, professor at this Bible college and come and be my youth pastor in Niagara? Bottom line is, Bill said yes. He took his family, traveled across the country with me, and together he and I led that church for many years, and then he became my successor. I passed on the leadership when I left to him, and he has been leading that church for the last 15 years. In fact, he just led them on a $20 million building program. Here's the thing. I am so glad that I did not say Bill's no for him. I am so glad that I didn't put a no where Bill was willing to put a yes. When we fail to pray, when we fail to ask God to intervene, we are saying God's no for him. We are putting a no where God may very well put a yes. And this actually brings us to today's big idea when it comes to this whole realm of prayer. I would propose to you that an unspoken prayer is an uncashed check. An unspoken prayer is an uncashed check. Now, I'm carrying in my pocket here today a check. Imagine if I carry this check around my whole life. It's paid to the order of Darren Latham for $10,000. It's duly signed. It's a legitimate check. The person who, who, uh, who wrote this check, they have the money. And I've carried this in my pocket for years. Imagine that. Now, I've needed $10,000 a few times over my life. And I've had this check in my pocket it's signed, it's authorized, but instead of cashing it, I just keep it in my pocket. I never access it. How foolish would that be? Well, an unspoken prayer is like an uncashed check. An unspoken prayer is an untapped potential. An unspoken prayer is a missed opportunity for God to act, for God to supply. That's what I mean when I say that an unspoken prayer is an uncashed check. It's God's power. It's God's resources kept chained on the sidelines in our lives, kept tucked away in our pocket. Now you're sitting there and you're listening to me and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, Darren, this all sounds good. But I've prayed so many prayers where God's response was silence or a resounding no. I mean, we all know about those kinds of prayers, don't we? I've prayed them. I'm sure you've prayed them. The prayer to heal a loved one facing a terminal disease and our loved one passes away. The prayer to change a circumstance that's causing strain and stress and the circumstance doesn't seem to budge. So how should we respond to moments like this? Well, let me ask you this. Are you going to let instances of hearing God's no remove all possibilities of hearing God's yes? 
Why would you do that? Why would you go silent on an all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God who invites you and encourages you to play a role in our world? Well, you say, so how should we respond to moments like this, Darren, when, when God's silent or when God says no? We should pray, we should ask him to intervene, and we should trust him with the results. That's what we should do. We trust the God who knows all things. We trust the God who has all power. We trust the God who is sovereign over the universe. We trust the God who is just and holy and gracious. We trust the God who loves us with the purest love imaginable. We trust that even when he says no, it's for our ultimate good. Having said that, let me say this. There is one prayer that God will always say yes to, and he will always say yes to it the very moment that it's prayed. It's known as the sinner's prayer. It's the prayer that's prayed in response to the words of Jesus and recorded as recorded in John 3.16, where Jesus said, God the Father sent his son into the world so that the world would be saved. Jesus said, God so loved the world that whoever believes in me, Jesus, will not perish but will have everlasting life. So if you pray that prayer saying, Jesus, I choose to believe in you, to accept your gift of forgiveness and eternal life, Jesus said, I promise you, that prayer will be answered. Whoever believes will be saved. That's a prayer that I would be honored to lead you in right now. Let's pray together. God, first of all, we thank you that you're present in our lives. And though we don't understand everything, you know what we don't know. You see what we don't see. You do things that we don't understand in ways that we don't always understand, but you connect dots that we don't even see on the horizon. And so we declare right now that we trust you. We believe, help our unbelief. So we're gonna continue to call out to you. We're gonna continue to pray to you and we're gonna trust you that you do all things well. And if you're watching right now and you've not yet prayed that prayer to invite Jesus to come into your life, to forgive you and take control of your life, pray this with me right now. Lord God, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my rebellion. I don't wanna live this way anymore. I accept your gift that you purchased on my behalf through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Come into my life, cleanse me of my sin fill me with your spirit and lead me and guide me from this moment forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen means that's right or so be it. If you prayed that prayer with me, you should see on the screen right now a number. Text that number and one of our team will respond to your text with another text and will offer to help you in any way that we can to help you take the next step in your journey. We're not tricking you. You're not going to be placed on a mailing list. You're not joining Broadway Church, but we'll offer to help you in any way that we can. God bless you. Thank you for being with us at Broadway Church today.